Welcome to the Two Writing Teachers podcast. Two Writing Teachers is a meeting place for a world of reflective writers. Here on the podcast, we are excited to talk about ways to create, lead, and sustain joyful and productive writing workshops. My name is Stacey Schubitz, and I'm here with my colleague, Melanie Meehan. Let's work together to inspire and empower students to be competent, brave, and confident writers. Before we begin, we want to ask you a small favor. Your comments and reviews possess immense power, and we would be grateful if you can leave your feedback on your preferred podcasting platform. Leave a comment about a Digging Deeper dialogue or a conversation with a colleague episode that intrigued you or pushed your thinking. Or you can share about a tip for tomorrow you found exceedingly valuable. Reviews are beneficial to us since they allow us to understand what's resonating with our listeners so we can create more content that is helpful to you. In addition, ratings and reviews on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify help other educators discover this podcast. Thank you in advance for doing this. And now on to this week's episode. Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining me today. I am really excited that I am here with my colleague, Lainey Levin, for a conversation with a colleague about oral language. Lainey Levin has taught for 28 years and fiercely advocates for children and public education. She was a classroom teacher in Virginia and Michigan before moving to the Chicago suburbs, where she presently resides, and she served as a gifted interventionist and coach in language arts and math. Presently, Lainey is a language arts specialist serving the needs of gifted and talented elementary school students. She has been one of my colleagues at Two Writing Teachers since 2021. The important thing to know about Lainey is that she's a storytelling enthusiast. She has given performances and workshops to a wide range of audiences nationwide. Her work with fellow teller Yvonne Healy on using storytelling to connect generations and foster love for writing is featured in the Storytelling Classroom, edited by Sherry Norfolk, Jane Stenson, and Diane Williams. Today, I want to draw on Lainey's experience as both a storyteller and an educator to help us dive into the world of oral storytelling. Welcome, Lainey. Thank you, Stacey. I am so excited to be here today. Awesome. I am thrilled to have you here on the pod. So let's jump in and start with storytelling first. How did you get your start as a storyteller? Can you just briefly share some of your journey in storytelling with us? Sure thing. I actually consider myself that I've been a storyteller since I call it the ripe old age of 10. Uh, when I was in <laughs> fifth grade, uh, when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher, Mr. Schlam, and a guidance counselor, Mr. Stiefel, and they were both master storytellers. Uh, they did a storytelling unit with us. I still remember uh, sitting as Mr. Stiefel told us the story of Beowulf. I mean, that was just so incredibly powerful. Wow. And where it really caught on for me was um, St. Louis has a storytelling festival every year down on the Arch Grounds. And there I was at the old courthouse. Hundreds of school kids were sitting listening to this teller. And this guy was, you know, a couple hundred feet away. And there was a million kids running around. Um, but I just sat transfixed. And they talk about that being the storytelling trance. 
Mm-hmm. How when you're listening to a story, and this is at any age, there's just a different level of like consciousness that comes over you. And I remember looking at that guy way up there thinking, this is what I want to do. Uh, and so that's when I really consider my journey of started. Uh, I did at 10. At 10. At the 10. age that many of the students of the educators who listen to this podcast are right now. 10. That's exactly right. Uh, and so I, I continue doing it. There, I was lucky enough that it was a, an event in speech and debate in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was in college doing my student teacher, that's when I got to see the power of that storytelling trance mm-hmm. within my instruction. When mm-hmm. I was telling stories to my students, it didn't matter how unruly or wild the class was or certain kids were, it seemed to just work magic. Uh, and I really thought, wow, I'm, I'm kind of onto something. Mm-hmm. I was onto it enough where I had professors who would tell me in mock interviews, you know, you really need to, to make sure that the people that you're interviewing with know that you are a storyteller. You should let them know that you do storytelling. Because uh, well, it's she- different. It's, I mean, it's not something that everyone does. And of course, it's a great way to stand out. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of wrote it off and, you know, maybe it was because I wasn't very confident in my abilities yet being in my early 20s. But sure enough, storytelling landed me my first job. I was sitting in the interview and I think I just randomly tossed out that I did storytelling, mm-hmm. finished the interview, this principal and the assistant principal walked out. Then they came back in and the assistant principal said, you mentioned you do storytelling. Will you tell us a story? Oh, my gosh. So I told them a story and I got the job. That's amazing. It was. Uh, and so it's like if, the, if there was anything that gave me the power of, of storytelling, that, that would have been it. Um, and what I would say is that over the course of the years, that storytelling piece has evolved So Mm -hmm. it started out in a very performative way that I would tell stories to students and they would be sitting and they would listen in that storytelling trance. Uh, And then I started to realize that it it didn't just help support kids with behaviors. Mm -hmm. It also created an avenue for a lot of kids, for the kids who are super verbal, who are the kids who are super active, right? Storytelling really became a way for them to express themselves in ways Mm -hmm. that seemed most natural to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so incorporating students doing storytelling became the next step. And from there, it just brought into an overall appreciation of oral language in instruction. So for anyone who's listening to this, that's hearing what you're saying, they're going to be like, that is great. I don't have the time for this. Where do I make the time in my day for this? Before we go any further, what are some ways that you incorporate storytelling naturally into your classroom with your students? I think the easiest, most accessible way is just in the communication that we have with one or one another from day to day. It's talking about what we did over the weekend. Mm-hmm. It's uh, sharing something that was important to us. It's our kids having conversations um, about 
what they're looking forward to or about something that they did with a relative. I feel like storytelling doesn't have to be that big festival stage person in a major performance. It's in so much of the way that we communicate with each other. So when I'm encouraging my colleagues to give storytelling a try, Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that I do is talk to them about how, how much of it we already do. Right. We all tell stories. We know that stories bind us together. And it just sounds like you are using those everyday touchstones that you have with your students to kind of, um, I don't know, zhuzh them up a little bit and turn it into storytelling moments. And I think one of the other things that is important to do, too, is just to encourage teachers to take that leap. I I think about some third grade colleagues that uh, I've been working with on creating a fairy tale and storytelling unit. Mm -hmm. And the biggest first leap is just once, just try to put the book down. Mm -hmm. Just think about the story that's in your bones and just say what it is. And it is incredibly amazing what a difference it makes in the delivery of the story and how the kids respond to it. So even just that little leap of, you know what, if there's a story that you kind of know in your bones, give Mm -hmm. it a go. See what happens. Take the risk. Take the risk. So moving back in time, in a post that you wrote back in 2022, it was called Talking It Out, Oral Language as a Tool for Revision, and I will obviously link it in the show notes, you spoke some real truths in that piece. And I want to share with our listeners right now um, some of the words that you wrote back then about the importance of oral language beyond the primary years in elementary school. And then we'll kind of use that as our jumping off point. You wrote... When people talk about using oral language for writing instruction, the first image that often comes to mind is primary kids. Young learners might talk along with pictures they've drawn, dictate a story that will later be typed or handwritten, and tell one another stories as a means of crafting or drafting. It's no secret that storytelling helps children develop a sense of story. It's no secret that oral language supports kids who don't yet have the mechanics of writing. And it's no secret that storytelling and oral language allow students to compose writing in a low-risk, often fun way. What many don't realize, however, is that oral language can support writing throughout the process and that learners of all ages through adulthood can benefit from bringing oral language into the picture. So let's use this to begin our discussion about the ways upper elementary schoolers benefit from using oral language to support the writing process. Sure, absolutely. And I think that one of the places where I start with is just considering what oral language does for us. Mm-hmm. I talk to my kids about this idea that if, if we could picture different body parts being animals, our brains are the cheetahs. They move super fast, lightning speed, hard to catch. Mm-hmm. Our, our mouths are kind of like rabbits. They're, they're pretty quick. Sometimes they move ahead of us, mm-hmm. but they're, they're pretty quick. Uh, and our hands are like the snails. Mm-hmm. And whenever we're asking students to write, basically what we're doing, whether we're having them handwrite or write on the computer, basically we're telling them that the cheetah and the snail have to keep the same pace. Mm-hmm. 
And it's the oral language that's the link between the two. And so across genres, across ages, upper elementary, even through middle middle school and high school, oral language is a way where our students can process what they are thinking and figure out how they are going to articulate their thoughts in a way that makes sense on paper or on the screen. So... I love for a sec. I just want to go back a second because I love that um, the picture I just had in my head of those three animals. At first, you started talking like, "Where on earth is she going with this?" And it totally makes sense. As soon as you were like trying to bridge that gap, and like I'm thinking, "Oh yeah, the rabbit that we want them to be the rabbit." Um, what a great way to illustrate that for kids, um, because clearly it just clicked in my getting close to 50 year old brain. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, I think I, I like to teach in metaphor because for me, that's what makes the most sense. If, uh, if students can see something from another direction, it just helps solidify that concept a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always a fun one for me. And when we're talking about oral language, you know, I think about it in a couple of directions. There's drafting, right? And that can be in fiction where kids might be storyboarding or using puppets to work out dialogue, but it can also take place in other genres. So if students are doing persuasive writing, they can certainly have conversations about pros and cons or Mm -hmm. reasons for why they think one thing or another. Uh, For informational text, there's the super popular AMA that Ask Me Anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we've done that to help set up informational writing where we've done timed rotations where mm-hmm. students are only allowed to talk about one kid's ideas mm-hmm. or sit in silence or however it works. But mm-hmm. um, having those sorts of things where the kids can talk to one another and really verbally process what they're saying helps with that drafting piece across the genres. As I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking about all of the mistakes I made as an upper elementary school teacher, because I'm thinking of all of the missed opportunities that I just didn't capitalize on when it comes to using oral language in this way, because, and this is why I selected that quote from that particular piece of yours, is because... I have always been an upper elementary person, and I will be the first one to say that when I was in the classroom, I was not tapping into the power of oral language, oral rehearsal, or oral storytelling at all. I mean, I shouldn't say at all. Very little. Very, very little. And I'm hearing you say this, and I'm like, wow, there are so many possibilities if we can get out of the mindset that... It is something that's reserved for the youngest students. Yeah. And I have to be completely honest with you. Like this is a direction where I'm still evolving as well, where Mm -hmm. I'm still taking my students lead in terms of what is it that they are able to do and what are the avenues of oral language that help them most. Mm -hmm. So the good news is I'm learning along with you. Um, And one of the more recent pieces of learning that have come along for me is in not just using oral language for drafting, but using it as a tool for revision. That might look like um, crowdsourcing, 
where mm-hmm. the writer gets to control, hey, listen, I'm having trouble naming this character, or I don't know where to start this story out. And the, the group just has a conversation about what that could look like and what suggestions they might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one that I discovered that I really enjoy is when you have maybe a group of three or four students. Uh, and again, this is for upper elementary through pretty much any grade in a classroom community where there's some degree of trust between the students you have, if I'm, if I'm the person who has written a story, the three other students in the group will read that story out loud using the words and the punctuation as their guide for expression. Okay. And the person who has written the story just sits back quietly and take notes as they read. It's one thing that will allow for them to notice For example, if there are areas where they need to improve their punctuation for meeting, Mm -hmm. or if there are sentences that are awkward or clunky or not quite right to the ear, they will hear every little bit of that because they're now listening. Right. I mean, it's very revealing. Natalie Babbitt has one of my favorite quotes that she's ever said is that punctuation are stage directions for readers. And if you think about it like that, what better way to understand how that punctuation fell onto your reader by hearing them read out loud? Because if it doesn't sound the way that you wanted it to, then it has to be fixed. Yes. Yes. And if the language doesn't make sense or the story doesn't make sense, it will become very clear Mm -hmm. in the delivery of the people who are reading it out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I recommend this for groups where there is already some sense of writing community, where there Mm -hmm. is already that bit of trust Trust, between writers, uh, because I want to know if I'm sharing my writing that other people are going to be gentle with it. Mm -hmm. And as long as I have that trust, then an activity like that will work. That's beautiful. When Stacy and I first started our podcast, we researched various platforms and we made the great decision to use Zencaster for our recording. We've been really happy with this decision because for one, it's super easy to record a podcaster with Zencaster. We can log in using our browsers and start recording a high quality podcast right away. There have been a couple times when we've had unstable internet and Zencaster has multi-layered backups that keep the recordings in the highest quality a very relieving feature. With many different features and services, if you have thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. To get started, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use our code TWTPOD. You'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. We want you to have the same easy experiences we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. So you just spoke a little bit about how we can use oral language in the editing process and to... Also, it's a little bit of revision, a little bit of editing that you were just talking about. Um, Let's back it up for a second to nurturing, that stage where students have collected quite a bit in their writer's notebooks and they have picked something that they want to develop further 
there are several ways they can do it. Um, one way is to write a lot about it and explore the topic in different ways. Another way is to do some drawing. Again, often poo-pooed in upper grade classrooms, probably shouldn't be, but it often is. Walk down that road myself, so I will be the first one to admit it. One thing that there's, there is one place I know that I used oral language with some of my students, and it was during like that nurturing phase where it's like, okay, what are you really trying to say as a writer? What are you really trying to bring out? And like, it was usually through conversation. Sometimes it was through some oral rehearsal, but I mean, I can count on one hand how many times that was. Can you share some tips for how to use oral language in a meaningful way during that nurturing stage of the writing process? Absolutely. And I think it's important to recognize, as you mentioned, that there are some folks who just want to sit and write it all out. There are some folks who sort of need a visual plan or some visual ideas. And there are also our verbal processors, the people who think best when words are coming out of their mouth and they can hear what it is that they're saying. And for those thinkers, and I think to stretch other people as well, I think it does make sense to have that oral rehearsal. Uh, so the question is, what does that look like for fiction? I know that the drawing is, yes, poo-pooed, uh, but I do demonstrate uh, with storyboarding, it doesn't even have to be anything very detailed or delicate. I literally spend, exactly, I tell mm -hmm. students to spend 10 to 15 seconds max on each picture, mm -hmm. just so it is that they know, or right. perhaps that they are doing some persuasive writing. It's just a single word or phrase on each part of the storyboard. Um, but then what it comes to is this idea of touch and tell. So for every point, for every scene, for every idea, they just kind of touch whatever that picture or word is, and they talk through what it is that they're thinking, and mm -hmm. then they move on to the next one. And then they go back and the next time they do it, they try to add one more detail or they switch up the words so that it sounds a bit more articulate or uses more domain specific vocabulary. And then also too, with that piece of the drafting, they can do that with one another and they can also kind of give each other responses or advice in terms of what does this need more of? What do you need less of? Uh, those sorts of things so that they can tell what it is that they're thinking either in the story or perhaps, like I said, a persuasive argument. Mm -hmm. And then they get their feedback and they instantly go back and retell, go through orally what they just did so that they can incorporate the changes instantly and have them settle into their brain so that the words are more set for when they're ready to write. So I just want to ask a clarifying question. When they're doing this, are mm -hmm. they saying this aloud to a partner or are they saying it aloud to themselves or a device? Most of the time they're saying it out loud to a partner or to a mm -hmm. group who can offer that objective feedback. I know for myself, it's really difficult to kind of get that Google Earth vision of mm -hmm. the work that I'm doing. And so having somebody else in on the process mm -hmm. just lets me understand how my words are being heard. I certainly have an intent of what I want to say. The question is whether or not I've reached that goal. And that's where mm -hmm. having work partners will help with that. 
I want to go back to something that you said a couple minutes ago, and I was just taking notes on it. You were saying, you know, some students like to do this type of work. Others need the little push to do it. And it reminds me of these affirmations that a student can have and say, like, I'm the kind of writer who... Da, 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 da. So I'm the kind of writer who likes to share my writing aloud with someone. I'm the kind of writer who wants to talk things out with a partner partner ahead of time. I am the kind of writer who needs input from other people as I'm developing my piece. And all of that to me means that this is a way to personalize the writing process because I've often talked about the fact that the writing process is not linear. It's recursive and everyone keeps pretending and not everyone, but many people keep pretending that it is this linear process and it's not. And this is yet another way to customize the writing process because you might become the kind of writer who really enjoys oral rehearsal and oral storytelling if you have enough attempts to practice it or enough pushes to try it out. Absolutely. One of the things that I try to model for my students is that idea of task avoidance comes (laughs) when there is fear Mm -hmm. of fear of failure. So if I know I'm not going to be good at something, I'm not going to want to do it. And then one of the things that we talk about constantly in our classrooms is the only way to get better at doing a thing is to do the thing. Right. It's a lot of practice. No one really gets good at something by just doing it a couple of times. I live with a child who likes to believe that they, notice I am not saying which child this is, that they will get better at a particular sport just because the day, you know, it's the next day. And I'm like, well, did you practice said sport? And I mean, the same is true for writing. You have to practice all of these skills in order to get really good at them. Absolutely. Uh, And that's for me where I find that having my own hobbies, trying difficult things on my own brings me back to that space of being a learner. And it reminds me every time I go to do it, how incredibly brave our students are for trying all the things that we're asking them to do. I have incredible respect for my students and the level of bravery they show every single time I ask them to do a task that's out of their comfort zone. It's amazing to me. Speaking of things that are out of my comfort zone um, that you do, can you share what it is that like is incredibly brave and strong that you do (laughs) that like is really, really hard and you have to keep working at it? Sure. I am an Olympic weightlifter. So there is a gym locally that I go to. uh, And when we talk about Olympic weightlifting, there are two, uh, there are two lifts. There is the snatch, which takes a barbell and then brings it straight from the ground to overhead. Uh, And then there's the clean and jerk, which is picking up a barbell to the shoulders and then hoisting it up overhead in a separate movement. And it's just technically- hard. Oh my God, it's hard. <laughs> I look at those videos and I'm like, how does she do that? <laughs> I, yeah, and that's the thing. And um, I've been doing it for a while. And yes, I realize that I have a particular degree of skill to it, but I'm also 
when I compare myself to other lifters, I'm still very much a novice. Mm-hmm. I talk to my coach about comparing it kind of like to golf. Mm-hmm. After every stroke, after every lift, there is that mental question of, okay, so what went wrong and what am I going to do better next time? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't change no matter the skill level. And for me, right. there is something so empowering and exciting about having something that is difficult to master. That's just, it It really keeps me going. And again, it gives me empathy for being in that space of being a learner. And that really matters. I, I think that when we can also bring that out to kids and say like, this is something I do outside of school. And I don't know if you share that with your students or not. Um, I do. I do. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad I didn't ask you to divulge anything that you don't. I felt like I was pretty safe saying that. But, um, but I think when we share that, like, you know, it really matters. Like kids need to know that things are hard for us as grownups. And the only way that we can really empathize with what they're going through day after day after day is to keep pushing ourselves to do hard things. Absolutely. And I think there's some comfort for kids if they know that a lot of the same things that they go through don't change because you get your grown-up card. Right. So the things that are difficult for you as a kid, I hate to break it to you kids, but they're things that I struggle with too. And while it might be discouraging to think, oh my gosh, I thought I got, I thought that got better when I turned 20, there is some degree of validation for them to understand that I'm not going through these things because I'm a kid. I'm going through these things because I'm a human. Right. And so that's why with, especially with the oral language and the writing piece and all of that conversation, it comes to not just you're doing this because you're a kid, you're doing this because you're a human. And you're trying to express yourself. And that's what we're trying to work for in whatever way we can. And oral language is just one of those pathways. I'm thrilled to tell you about Babbel if you haven't already heard about it. Babbel is a language learning app perfect for real world use. Actual language experts created Babbel's bite-sized 10-minute lessons so you'll learn to have meaningful conversations quickly. With three weeks of daily practice, users have reported confidently starting basic conversations. You can dive into lessons, podcasts, games, videos, content articles, and even live online classes with top-notch teachers through Babbel Live. And the best part? When you sign up for Babbel Live, the app is included at no extra cost. Join over 10 million subscribers who have chosen Babbel. And to give you complete peace of mind, they offer a 20-day money-back guarantee. If you're not fully satisfied, Babbel will provide you with a full refund. Follow the link in the show notes to sign up for Babbel today. Let's segue this whole, we need to practice a lot at something in order to get really good at it conversation into something else. You have written a lot about students' perfectionism. Could you share maybe your top three tips for helping students to overcome perfectionism? Sure. Um, And, you know, this is something that I could uh, take a week to chat about. So I'll do my best to be brief. We can have you back. All right. I think think the first step is recognizing that perfectionism takes place in many different forms. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And the two that really occur for me the most when I look at my students 
are task avoidance and procrastination. Mm-hmm. Students just don't do what we're asking them to do. And what I have found is that rather than it being sort of a disciplinary thing or a behavior thing, what I find is that task avoidance and procrastination are manifestations of perfectionism. And the reason why is because if I can't do a task because I've run out of time, I don't have to blame myself if it's poorly done. Correct. The so clock did it. The clock did it. I can I can attribute my failure to something external. Mm-hmm. And for some of the kids that I have who are working their way through issues of perfectionism, that's a survival tactic for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that teaching students uh, what that is, how to name it, how to get through it is a first step. Thanks. I think the next step is looking at this idea of perfectionism versus a pursuit of excellence. Hmm. So the question is, what does it take to complete a task and just feel solid about it? Recognizing Mm -hmm. that we're probably our own best judge of quality and recognizing when we feel good about a thing that we've done, that is enough. I'm just yes. smiling because it reminds me of a book I recently finished like a week or two ago called The Good Enough Job. And it's about these people who are perfectionists, probably would be the best way to describe them, who were always in pursuit of just, you know, more money, more prestige to the point where they would physically make themselves sick or mentally make themselves sick or both. And it's like all nine of the people that this author interviewed kind of came to this reckoning that like sometimes good enough can be good enough. And like you can still be fantastic at something without losing all of your headspace and devoting all of your headspace, I guess, to this one thing. Like it can be good enough and you can do a pretty darn good job and not be a perfectionist about it. So kind Absolutely. of connected. We are in a we are in a career of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. You know, we d- most definitely are. And there are times where I look at my colleagues in the eye and say, "Friend, your C game is somebody else's A game. Mm-hmm. Who you are is more important than what you teach. Mm-hmm. Remember that now." And mm-hmm. sometimes that's all it takes to just kind of turn a day around. And it's interesting that you mentioned the good enough piece, because that kind of leads into my third tip, which is this idea of work quality and trying our best. I had a group of fifth graders several years ago who came to me completely overwhelmed because they were always trying their best on everything. And they were overwhelmed because they just didn't have the time to do it all and to do it their best. And so we sat back and said, okay, well, what is the least you can do on a task? Mm-hmm. Well, don't do it. What's the absolute tippy top? Perfectionism. Well, we know that's completely unattainable. Mm-hmm. And that students develop this work quality continuum from not Ooh, done. I love this. I can I can share a copy with you and I can we can even make a copy available if people want the visual. Oh, they're gonna it's, want the visual. Uh, it goes through the steps of not done, done poorly, done done well, your best, and then perfectionism, which is, you know, not Mm -hmm. even worth trying. Mm -hmm. And what we sort of parsed out was 
not doing a job or not doing it well at all, doing it poorly, that wasn't a good use of our time because we know we're going to catch it, right? Mm -hmm. In one way or another, we're going to get into trouble. We're going to let ourselves down. We might let teammates down. Let's just not even consider it. And that leads us to doing a job, just getting it over with, doing it well, or doing our best. And I kind of compare that to, again, teaching in metaphor is cooking, right? When it's Thanksgiving or when it's the holidays, I break out all the best recipes and I spend days preparing. Mm -hmm. That is my best. But consider what would happen if I tried to make Thanksgiving every night. (laughs) And the kids are like, there's no way. Exactly. There's no way. And that's what happens when we literally force ourselves to do our best on every assignment. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at is doing something to get it over with and doing it well and pulling out our best for when it really matters to us. Mm -hmm. And so what we look at with that is it's a measure of the time, the effort, the heart, and the skill. We have control over all of those things Mm -hmm. that we put into any task we do, whether it's folding laundry or writing an essay or doing math problems, right? It's we decide how much energy and effort and skill we're putting into it. And when we have control over those things, then the stress of doing all of those different tasks becomes a bit more manageable because, again, the control is within our own circle. So to recap, I want to make sure I have this correct. You were saying the things that we can control are time, effort, heart, and skill. Am I correct about that? Yes. Beautiful. Well, I know that you're going to send this to me and we'll make it available in the show notes. And, you know, Lainey, I feel like every time I talk to you or read something that you've written, be it on your personal blog or on Two Writing Teachers, I always learn so much from you. And I'm really hoping that you will be willing to come back to talk about the district-led writing initiative that's been going on in your school district For the past couple of years, um, I hope that you'll be willing to come back and talk about it so that other people can get really inspired. Do you think that might be something we can plan for later in the year? I would love to. I'm having just such an amazing time learning along with my colleagues, and I would be really excited to share the things that we're learning together. I think it's just absolutely incredible, the work that you and your colleagues are doing and that it has full administrative backing. That, that is, is, to me, I part. keep pinching myself, wondering how I keep waiting for somebody to say no. It's a funny thing when you're doing good things and you are pursuing improvement in the name of student empowerment. It's mm-hmm. amazing how quickly things come together. They really do. So speaking of student empowerment, I feel like by giving upper elementary school teachers and middle school teachers and beyond the permission to bring oral language into the classroom at all stages of the writing process, that will really empower kids. So I really appreciate you coming on and being a champion of oral language and storytelling for students. I mean, this has just been inspirational. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun for me, too. I appreciate it, Stacey. 
Thank you for listening to the Two Writing Teachers podcast. Check out the show notes for links to the items we mentioned in this episode, as well as ways to connect with us. For more about the teaching of writing, head over to the Two Writing Teachers blog at twowritingteachers.org. If you liked what you heard today, please share it with your friends and colleagues, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, and leave us ratings and reviews. Our music is by Lemon Music Studio. If you'd like to connect with us, email us at contact at twowritingteachers.org. Thanks again for listening. Let's teach, learn, and write on together. 